Accelerating to a better future, an insight into innovation at Imperial. Welcome to this edition of Accelerating to a Better Future, celebrating the work of the Accelerator Programme at Imperial College London with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Richard Templer. Richard, hi, how are you? I'm, I think I'm good. I think I think lockdown is getting to me a little bit, so I'm kind of looking forward to having this conversation just to get myself out of me and, and off into a better place in my head, at least. Well, we'll do our best. And um, I'm really looking forward to us being able to do it together round a table rather than our virtual yeah. studios spread across the country. Um, but um, I've got a question for you. Did you know how many bathtubs of water it takes to make a T-shirt? No, but I know somebody who does. <laughs> well, my best guest estimate is eight, but we're going to get Ed to give us a, a tee up as to whether that's actually right, because today we're talking about production and manufacturing for a low carbon economy. And we're really focusing on two of the huge challenges that I think we face, both textiles, cotton particularly, and, and producing cotton in a sustainable way for the clothing industry, and also how we produce sustainable packaging for temperature sensitive items such as food or even medicines. So I'm delighted to introduce our guest today. We have Edward Brill, who's the CEO and founder of Hydrocotton. Ed, hi, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And Elena Diekman, um, who's the co-founder of Aeropowder. Hello, nice to meet you. So, Ed, tell us how many bathtubs of water does it take to make a T-shirt? <laughs> um, well, this is, uh, sorry to be an engineer at nine in the morning on a Monday, but it uh, depends how many litres go into the bath. The estimate and how many around, men are filling it at and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah no it's a it's it's a good question and it's a really good example as to the constraints and parameters around it but if we're assuming about eight thousand liters for a kilogram of cotton um I'm trying to think how many hundreds of liters would be in a bathtub but you probably have less than less than a kilo of cotton from eight bathtubs or something like that so a lot. It's about two years of uh, humans drinking water for an average pair of jeans. Wow. But obviously there's a bit of fluctuation depending on how the cotton's grown. Crikey. That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, that's an awful cost. And if you think how many pairs of jeans people get through in, in a lifetime, and particularly, dare I say, it, younger people who are persuaded to buy and, and throw away fashion at an alarming rate. Let's be honest, Levi's don't look very good on, on the older man. <laughs> No, I think you look quite cool in one of those sort of dungaree sets, actually, Richard, oh. you know, with the bib. Okay, all right. <laughs> but seriously, Ed, so what, what sparked your interest in this and what, how did it develop for, into the, the business that you're running now? Was it that you were fascinated with the production side or was it more to do with actual manufacturing in terms of the, the raw input and design? So the, the initial interest uh, that sparked off Hydrocotton um, was born about relatively organically from the common interest between my co-founders and I. So when we studied together at Imperial College London and the Royal College of Art, we had uh, different areas of research into design for social impact and sustainability. But one common thread was really looking at, the, at the, the impact at the base of the supply chain that produced so many of the objects and garments that we consume on a day-to-day -day basis. And as we worked in different sectors, over the years that followed our graduation, 
we started to hone into um, agricultural supply chains and the fashion supply chain. And this is where we initially came to the ideas around hydroponics. A lot of people possibly don't know that Imperial have this tie-up with the Royal College of Art. How does that work? Because that actually seems such a synergistic relationship to have art and design coming together with science in that way. Um, is that a, a, a programme that's been running for a while? I mean, Richard, I think people might not know that you did that. Uh, well, I think both of the Royal College of Art, and I'm very proud of it, it's been going for over a decade. In fact, Massively. actually for 40 years. So it's um, IDE's fortieth uh, anniversary uh, this wow. year. Wow! Yeah, and a lot of a lot of I mean, you know, the, the, Elena and, and, and Edward are, are graduates, but in fact, many others who've been on the program have been as well. And it's the fusion between uh, the technical and the artistic, the design that that I think is is a uh, is a unique and wonderful thing because they, you know they're, they're doing things about climate change. Often, always, it often seems very kind of. You know, it's quite serious and it's grim and we're going to have to do this and we have to do that. And it's just boring, right? And um, making making action on climate change desirable and interesting is, is a very valuable thing. Because making things desirable means that people want it rather than having to have it. Yeah, I mean, the word hair shirt comes to mind, and I think there's probably a terrible pun in there somewhere with hydrocotton, yeah. but I'm not going to go down that route. Um, Ed, can I just ask you, how, how did you start i mean you know cotton is such a, a ubiquitous um, material isn't it i mean what made you think that this was the problem that you could tackle as opposed to tackling something perhaps slightly smaller scale because because you've taken on a huge job here um i think it's <laughs> a really good question sometimes i ask it uh, to myself every day uh, it's a it's one of those things i think that it's one of these problems that we could easily assume particularly especially in the uk somehow uh, convince ourselves that it's it's a problem for someone else far away to solve. But it's so deeply linked to the way that we consume and also to, to British history and all of these different elements kind of come in to make it a really fascinating area to work in. I think the hurdles that have to be overcome in terms of scaling are absolutely uh, critical to have a grasp on from the very beginning. But I think because the... The industry, the fashion industry, is really at a pivotal moment. Let's say politely, the industry is very keen to change and to shore up uh, its supply chain and make it uh, well, what we would say is more uh, climate positive in a sense. Uh, it is a really awesome time to be trying out new innovations and really bringing them to market and filling gaps in, um, I guess, the holes in the fashion industry. So the way that cotton's grown it changes uh, worldwide. So there's lots of different opportunities for systems to really scale, uh, to have massive impact, but not be the only silver bullet solution in an industry that's so vast. You're growing some of your cotton here in the UK, aren't you? Uh, yeah, we're, so that's actually how we started. We started prototyping first in a basement in South London. How improbable that seems, uh, looked rather suspicious. Uh, but then we we were growing in a, in a startup co-working space called Green Lab, where we were fortunate enough to have a community around and get introduced to our fourth team member, who's a, who's a pepper farmer up in Essex. And it, altogether, we set up a larger growing space in what's, what's more similar to a Dutch glasshouse growing system. And that's where we've been running our prototype farms and looking next year to start growing in field. 
Okay, so I have to ask this just before we move on to Elena. How is it that you're reducing the water consumption of the growing process then? Because, because the the eight bathtubs I talked about isn't just in the manufacturing process, is it? It's actually in the production of the raw material, the cotton itself. So, so how do you do it without using up so more, so much water? So the 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 main system around the water saving is by using we're using well we're testing two different technologies. One is uh, drip irrigation, which starts to reduce the amount of water, but where we get the real savings up to eighty percent is by growing uh, cotton hydroponically. So we irrigate the plants directly and then recirculate the runoff. And that's where you can really start saving water, but you also prevent other effects from uh, large-scale farming. So things like eutrophication, when nutrients run off of the farms, that's um, that's a massive impact on surrounding ecosystems, but it also reduces uh, the footprint of the farms as lots of Fertilizers uh, require large amounts of energy to produce as well. Elena, they've said that we're entering into the the, the next scene, the Anthropocene, and one of the defining features of the Anthropocene in a million years' time, when they come back and do some digging up of bones, will be that the the most prevalent bone they'll find will be of chickens, <laughs> because we consume more chickens than any other product on the planet, I think. But you've decided that that actually you can um, use that consumption to your advantage haven't you because you're taking chicken feathers and doing something quite extraordinary with them thanks for the question amanda yeah so um what we do um is we use um feathers which is one of the most abandoned materials in the um yeah food processing industry um uh, to create a new textile so if we're talking about um uh, pools and bathtubs and so on so i can tell you um on a daily basis, humankind produces approximately 400 Olympic-sized swimming pools of this material. And it's all um, heavily contaminated, and um, we have uh, yeah, a process where we can um, yeah, turn this uh, abundant waste material into a highly insulating textile with um, various applications. So, so what are you actually doing? You're taking chicken feathers and then, and then cleaning them and reducing them. And how does, how does it work? Yeah, so we um, take the feather and we also can take all feathers that come from a from a chicken. So um, chicken actually have a lot of different types of feathers. So on the one hand, you have uh, contour feathers and wing feathers and down feathers and bristles and plumes. So you can see there are a lot of different feather types on a bird. They have a, a lot of different properties as well. So the chicken actually uses down feathers um, on their chest to insulate themselves and obviously a contour and wing feathers to stabilize its wings. So they have all fundamentally different properties. And in our conversion process, we can actually utilize all feathers, uh, which is quite good. So we clean them. We have a um, yeah, patented um, shredding or size reduction process and the resulting feathers, which are super lightweight and insulating, we use those in a textile processing plant to form yeah, a bed type material that can then be used for other applications. So, And the magic about our process is that we can actually um, produce um, a large range of materials. So super thin linings up to really thick boards that can be used as a structural material. Elena, can I, I, I can remember when, when you came in um, to get on the course and you brought you were one of the few groups that brought in samples and it got me very excited i can remember looking at these things and thinking wow these people have been working really hard and there was this one thing you brought in which which my recollection was it was sort of slightly grayish and it was a hydrophobic coating and it really was super hydrophobic have you have you um is that still something you're doing was that something you put to one side for the moment 
Yeah, so um, that was one of our very early um, experiments. So we developed um, hydrophobic uh, paint from from feathers because um, you can see that the duck and uh, geese, obviously, they are floating in water, so their feathers are hydrophobic and that is related to three different um, yeah, things. On the one hand, it's a, a lipid, so oil-based coating on the feathers. It's a keratin, so the molecular structure of keratin is partly um, hydrophobic and then also the um, macrostructure of feathers allows air to be trapped in between the feathers and that makes it also hydrophobic. So the paint we've developed was probably mostly based on the chemical properties of the feather. However, with more and more tests, we actually discovered that the hydrophobicity maybe lasted for half an hour. So that's oh. obviously not very beneficial. So <laughs> after more, more uh, durability tests, we found out that actually this, um, this uh, would probably need a massive chemical modification to be a lasting right. and durable paint. So actually, at the start, we developed a lot of different prototypes that um, were fun to look at, uh, that you also saw, but that went nowhere. We made a, a toothbrush from feathers as well. So yep. we used it for injection molding. But in the end, after all those prototypes, and it took us a year to evaluate all of those, we realized actually that the feather property, um, the insulating power is the most valuable and most unique property. And this is why we decided in the end to go for textiles, because this allowed us really to leverage this material feature in the best possible way. And I think this is a big issue for a lot of the uh, sustainable uh, mini startups that we have that you start off with all those ideas, but when you actually compare it to other natural materials or other commercially um, synthetic materials, you will see that natural fibers fall short in a lot of the material properties. And you really need to find and research hard to identify this most winning proposal to be commercially successful against all the synthetics. So this is what Amanda. This is this is kind of what I love about the the the, the graduates of this program, is they they, they got this um, they got they got the discipline of, of of science, but they got this unbelievable uh, tangential creativity. Because you know? um, I can I, I, I distinctly remember. You know the, the this, this these these samples coming in and me thinking, my God, they've got like a hundred different things they could do. This is fantastic. And then you worry that then they're going to end up never deciding what it is they want to do. But but actually, both teams are sort of very rapidly focused down on on the things that they can really do, which is uh, yeah, it's a testament, I think, to the training they got on the course, um, but also to them, obviously, as people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the course must be really important in helping you hone down what is and isn't workable. But I'm always struck when we have these conversations by the ingenuity of the entrepreneurs that we talk to. I mean, I don't think many people would look at a chicken and think, oh, that's a potential <laughs> insulation material. I can make something practical that, you know, of great use to the planet out of that. They'd probably just think lunch. Um, can I ask you, Elena, just what sort of byproducts are coming out of your manufacturing process? Because obviously we're trying really hard to reduce waste here, aren't we, and impact. How are you ensuring that your, your actual manufacturing process is, is, is sort of, you know, carbon neutral and, and planet friendly? So I have to say here, our manufacturing process is um, not carbon neutral. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's uh, it's really just the reality of um, utilizing waste materials. They are waste materials for a good reason. I mean, this is a material that no other industry really wants other than um, uh, the, the feather meal industry, which is rendering this material into a protein feed that ends up in landfill. So you really need to invest resources to um, utilize uh, 
heavily decontaminated waste feathers and this is water and this is energy so um, it's not carbon neutral um, obviously there are ways of offsetting your carbon footprint um, but then we are comparing our material um, we are uh, producing um, insulation materials for the food uh, delivery industry at the moment so um, we're comparing this to um, expanded polystyrene which um, has not a great carbon footprint overall. So I guess it really depends on a life cycle consideration at the end, um, you know, who, which one the, the winning technology really is. But um, yeah, we are not carbon neutral. And um, yeah, I believe it will be very difficult to find um, yeah, waste processors that, that can say that they are. So the true benefit is avoiding all that waste to landfill and actually using a product that, w- that would otherwise just be be totally destroyed or, or, or create, you know, pollution in other ways so so what's one of the biggest challenges you've had in the whole process um so i guess one is um finding uh really specialized industrial partnerships so um feathers are actually really a horrible material to work with not only are they heavily contaminated but they're also super lightweight um they're literally escaping any sort of machinery so uh, you have to imagine before yeah identifying our our technology, we went to, to 30 different manufacturing plants in Europe. We went to them and, and asked, hey, can we, can we chuck a ton of feathers in your machines and see what happens? And um, a lot of few people say yes at the beginning, but when you actually you know, bring this one ton of feathers, which is a whole truckload, you know, they realize the, the extent of, of this uh, trial and then they go everywhere. So you know, the whole factory will be full of feathers, which looks fun, but it's not fun for a production manager. And then you chuck them in and then a lot of the machines block up in the first instance. So I think we spent two years really just um, doing this trial and error process. Um, and then we found, um, yeah, some factories that can handle the material. And this was in textile processing because they um, work on the one hand with waste materials sometimes and also with super lightweight materials. So that was quite good. And also um, when you heat feathers, actually they decompose partly. So it smells as well very bad, you know, the the smell of burnt hair. So it's keratin and it's not made for burning. So, uh, yeah, this is, um, so there are a lot of hurdles um, technically that you're actually not aware when you're a graduate student from a, um, from a, from a program. So yeah, you you just, you know, get, get uh, confronted with all those real world challenges that uh, were solved with, um, from other people beforehand. So, um, yeah, I think it was quite a, a steep learning curve for all of us. How long did it take you? Because you're in production now, aren't you? You're actually producing materials that can be used. Yeah, so we have a small production set up now, which is partly automized as well. Um, so we started 2016, now it's uh, 2020. So it took us four years from um, feather to uh, textile uh, and have a semi-automated process, I would say. But we are really far away from making any quantities that polystyrene is making globally, um, like very far away. I think that's another 10 years, I guess, or um, the oil prices need to get uh, so exorbitantly high that it's worth, you know, investing in those technologies. I think, I think by the way, what, what, when, you know, when you were asking Amanda about, about whether it's carbon neutral or, or, or carbon negative, so. Uh, Elena was kind of hinting at this quite a deep you have to answer that it's quite a detailed thing because you need to know where your power came from whether it was decarbonized itself but one of the things that the hydrocotton um, and aeropowder share is that they're using natural products which I mean obviously from the point of view of, of cotton it's directly it's produced by photosynthesis but actually the feathers at second hand are as well because the 
the chickens feed on 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 things which have been made photosynthetically. So ultimately, you know, unlike the other discussions we've had, these two products are actually holding carbon as well that was in the atmosphere. Ed, is that something you've thought about? Because obviously you're tackling a, a huge and incredibly important issue because the waste in the textile industry and the, the cost to the planet of, produ- of cotton production is vast. So anything we can do to dent that challenge is, is more than worthwhile. But have you thought about some of those other issues around carbon neutrality and how you, you, you tackle that sort of problem? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's it's also it's one of the main metrics for sustainability uh, across most of the textile space. So the one way that people are starting to benchmark differences between synthetic oil-based fibers to silk to cotton is by uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So we're looking we're looking at our footprint from the get-go, and obviously we're we're using a technology that is. Um, is, uh, it, it requires infrastructural uh, interventions for the farming, but by the reduction in land use, as we grow um, much higher, uh, we, we grow a much higher yielding crop, and also by the reduction in inputs on the farms, we on aggregate reduce the footprint compared to many conventional cotton farming methods. So that's already part of what we're doing. And then in terms of um, power powering the irrigation systems. We're also looking at carbon neutral or cleaner technologies to supply. So technologies that are super interesting at the moment for um, farms that are particularly further off grid are things like agrivoltaics as well. So from the farm side of things, we are looking at how that can be completely, well, more or less mitigated. And then, yeah, we're talking about an agricultural product the good thing about farming systems is that they generally at least uh, have in the cotton world, there have been different uses so for the rest of the cotton plant. So we're looking at what we can do with the stalks and then also um, secondary markets for the seeds as well to make sure that there's no waste off of the farm sites. And then we're particularly looking at growing higher quality, longer stable cotton. So not all cotton is the same. And in fact, when you grow longer staples, you grow a more durable material as well. So we see opportunities as well in, in the fashion industry as there are more models looking to stewardship of garments for a longer period of time. And you can further mitigate the impact of the materials you produce by keeping them in use for a much longer period of time. So yeah, we can we can have a more durable product that we go on wearing and wearing. Some of us, some of us wear our clothes for a very long time anyway, sadly. And now we have Zoom. We only need to get dressed to the top half, so that's another huge saving. Um, just can I just ask you about the actual plant itself? Because I don't really know much about cotton plants, and I don't expect many listeners do. Does it just get one crop, or can you? Is it a multi-cropping plant, or do you? To, to, is it like a, a can of bean? You know, can you just dig it up and start again? Or so. Yeah, unfortunately, it is a plant that you could keep on going, as you, you could say, but they're, they're grown commercially in a perennial, as a perennial crop. Okay. This is because historically, because of the chemically intensive nature of cotton farming, the pests that come around are pretty serious. So most places where cotton is grown, they actually have a, a legal requirement to dig out the plants at the end of each year. So it's grown... Um, I guess you could compare it to the, the season to that of a tomato plant, maybe. But uh, you, it grows over six months, um, and that whole time the cotton plant 
every stress that you put on it reduces the potential yield, of course, and the potential fiber quality. So you have this six-month grow period, and then you can harvest for around two months. So traditionally, in areas such as South Asia, the, the growing season is uh, dictated by the rains. So you'll have the first rains at the beginning of the year, which soften up the ground, which allow you to plant. And then the last rains at the end of the year will actually just stop you being able to harvest any more cotton as well. So that's, it's, it's grown in a yearly cycle. Yours are inside and the hydroponic and you've keeping the pesticides down. So your plants are lasting longer, but are they also then multi-cropping? Is that sort of ha- is happening to them? So uh, the only thing I can say is we're testing different, we're testing different ideas. And that's a very exciting area because we can look at things like increasing yield, but also increasing reliability of the crop. So one thing that we're really focusing on is areas where climate volatility is really starting to affect yields uh, to not just to cotton farmers, but uh, farms in general. So when the year, when, when the annual rains that were so predictable before become more and more erratic, we don't have to uh, rely on those systems and we can keep the farms uh, going and we can also well, basically make sure that the livelihoods of the farmers are more secure as well. Yeah, I, I, I've, do you think you'll be able to do mass cropping in the UK or is your vision that you'll actually just take your your system and put it where the cotton is currently grown and make that more sustainable as an industry globally? That's exactly it. We're, we're not looking to grow cotton in the UK. Um, unfortunately, the, the climate is completely wrong for growing cotton and we can we can run our test facilities here, and, but we do have to heat them. And also the light, uh, the light cycles in the UK, because they change so much of the year, actually make our cotton is growing fine, but it is, um, it is not your standard cotton. So we, we're looking to replicate um, the core elements of our system and do a minimum viable approach in regions where cotton is currently grown, because then that also reduces the energy requirement. And Elena, are you planning to take your chicken feather production processes outside of the UK? Are they currently in the UK or are they currently in, in another part of Europe? Yeah, our supply chain is uh, actually spanning across Europe. So um, obviously Brexit will be a, a challenge for us, um, as it will be for other startups as well, I think. Mm. So, um, yeah, we, um, we, de- yeah, we depend on the European supply chain at the moment, hypothetically, you could manufacture our product um, everywhere where um, yeah, poultry is consumed, but uh, there still needs to be a cleaning process and um, a textile uh, manufacturing plant on site. So um, it really depends a bit. So um, if um, yeah, if uh, if the need is is uh, big for our technology globally, then it can be manufactured fairly low cost um, compared to a full scale um, plastic plant, but. You also have to say this is a really new technology and um, it's not matured yet. It's not uh, so scaled yet. You know, there are no um, economies of scale yet. So um, it, it is all on pilot at the moment. So, yeah, it, it will still take a while, I guess, until we see Plume manufactured um, globally. And it depends on a big network of supporters. Oh man, it's been, it's been just niggling away at me. The, the, the Elena mentioned something, and I think it's probably relevant to both businesses. You, you talked about, you, 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 well, you didn't talk directly about it, but you were talking about the relative cost or the relative price you have to charge for your products compared to petrochemicals. And, and you know, for, for hydrocotton, it would be comparing hydrocotton to, to the, you know, the, the, the current production methods. 
and that what you're doing is 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 more expensive because you know you, one you're starting with you don't have the economies of scale, but even that aside, that you're you're because you're taking care, it's it's costing more. Do you think that will change? I mean, you know, clearly you're both companies are still working away. Do you do you keep on working away because you believe that the cost of the competition will go up? Not because of the cost of oil, but for other reasons, you know, that just continuing to use petrochemicals um, will just become implausible in the future and you'll have to find replacements. Um, so for us, I can say it's not uh, the cost because that would be a long shot, I guess, but it's uh, legislation. So we can see in Europe and especially in Germany, they have introduced new legislation that um, prohibits the use of um, single use plastics. Um, so as I'm aware, there's polystyrene boxes for deliveries are not yet included because a lot of um, medical goods still depend on this technology. Mm -hmm. But obviously, um, you know, once the differentiation is made between food deliveries and medical goods, then uh, we are talking business here. And yeah, the moment that single-use plastics in this context are not allowed anymore, we can have a really valid business case. And I think we can reach a point uh, where we are maybe... I don't know, twenty percent more expensive than polystyrene, but still affordable. And especially if we have um, big customers that buy millions of our products, then I think we can um, get it down to a competitive price. Yeah, I, 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 I feel a bit, a little bit more like um, over the next this this coming decade. I think that actually, as as we stop burning stuff to make energy. That you know, we 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 burn what is it about ninety three percent of oil and gas is burnt, and only seven percent uh, by volume is used to to make stuff, including the the the, the polymers and so on that, that that you're talking about. I I think that as soon as you stop burning, then then well the 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 cost of petrochemicals goes rocketing up because currently they. They glide along on the big consumer sales of, of, of petroleum and gas. Now, at that point, even without regulation, I, I suspect, I haven't done the numbers, but I suspect that products like yours will, will end up actually becoming favourable. Yeah, and it shouldn't just be about the decline in, you know, the cost, the, the increase in cost in, in petrochemicals, should it? It should be that this is the right thing to do. I mean, it's appropriate that we use this fast waste material in terms of chicken feathers to do something more productive. And it's appropriate that we tackle the hugely costly um, production of cotton in terms of, you know, the, the impact on the environment and the use of water. And also, actually, you know, I think, as you point out, in, in on your website, Ed, that actually we're not going to be going, able to produce cotton in the same way because we are literally running out of water. And the areas that, that, that produce cotton at the moment are so, you know, they're on such a knife edge in terms of the, the availability of water and that's shrinking day by day. So so it isn't just the economics. So the economics, of course, are hugely important, Richard, aren't they? But it is actually also the the need, the kind of human need to, to find different solutions to some of the challenges that we face. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that, that, you know, I said, I think earlier on about things being desirable. People, we, we as humans buy stuff, not because we have to, but because we want to. Ed, yeah, I think, I think you Yeah, no, that's, um, it's, it's definitely, I think that's, that's something that drives me to work on this project. The, the hope that, um, because like, like you're saying, put, making, making sustainability more desirable, at least when you're talking from a fashion perspective, 
gives me hope that um, people will start considering more of the materials. But unfortunately, the reality of the industry is that um, any any unjustified cost increase and at, at the moment, uh, more sustainable products, if there's a cost increase, it's not the it's not going to be it's not going to justify anyone switching up their supply chain the only reason that people will switch their supply chain for sustainability right now is if there's no cost increase but there is a benefit to changing to changing the way that they source materials so we we're looking that's why we're looking particularly at high quality cotton to uh, to begin with we can we can make this more sustainable material from the durability perspective and we can also look at increasing the margins for the farms as we start. That's how we we have to start, because the reality is that until I think until systems really start to collapse, then there won't be a wholesale shift in, in that part of the supply chain, because the current sustainability initiatives are all predicated on the fact that there is no no change to the status quo of pricing at the moment. I can I can absolutely support what Ed is saying. So we found exactly the same thing. Um, it says, but yeah, the the problem is really in the supply chains. Um, the end customer we found is happy to pay um, a little bit more, but uh, the whole <laughs> yeah middle middlemen are not they're not willing to take any uh, price hiccups. Like definitely not, um, and and not even to get you started. So I don't know what Ed's experience is, but we, we found we need to literally be, have the same price as as some um, synthetics at the moment. That's completely wrong because as consumers, we are keen to, to buy more sustainably and we're prepared to pay more. And I think, you know, particularly in terms of fashion or in terms of tackling single use plastic, a lot of people feel really passionately that this is something they could do and they're prepared to put their, their money where their conscience is. But it's depressing to hear that, that even though we'll do that as, as, as consumers, you're being stymied in the process because there's someone in the middle who's not prepared to be flexible. Just to answer that, um, in terms of consumer spending more uh, in the fashion industry, uh, whilst across the board, at least from uh, European surveys, uh, consumers are aware of sustainability within the fashion space, uh, the, the data showing that they are spending more on sustainable products is uh, not, it has yet to materialize as a convincing argument from the perspective of changing the supply chain to meet their needs. However, there are some trends. <laughs> I think if you'd have mentioned this a few months ago, I would have not, I would have been a little less rosy in my um, uh, answer, but we are seeing, especially with uh, Gen Z, they're spending a lot more money on things like secondhand clothes. So there is a shift in consumer behavior, which is really encouraging. And that might be the trigger that actually starts to get the supply chain to embrace maybe uh, this uh, sustainability premium but at the moment that's not an option yeah I think there are I mean I do think it's something for Gen Z they they do care about this stuff but often they're not the ones with the huge spending power at the moment are they so you know they love they love the second hands because it helps them to to buy more at lower cost but that in itself is a good thing because that stops it from going to landfill you know and we're doing our bit with the sustainable cotton dungarees um Elena, you've got a few last points that you'd like to make. Perhaps, I don't know, your ambitions or your call for action for policymakers and government. 
oh, yeah, it's, it's quite difficult. Uh, you know, it's a call to action. Um, uh, eat more chicken, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, well, that's, I don't think there's any danger of your raw material running out, is there, to be yeah, fair? Actually, not not really. So, um, I mean, we have um, a lot of those discussions um, with them. Um, we actually did some market research with them, um, vegans, vegetarians, and also carnivores, so meat eaters. <laughs> Um, so we see usually people that eat meat have no issue at all with our uh, material. And vegetarians are usually quite happy to utilize our products because they, um, they're all about waste avoidance and reuse. So they have the mindset. However, vegans really have an issue um, with our material. Um, they don't quite see the point of uh, using it up. They, they literally want to move to a meat-free society. But if we look at the stats, um, we see that that poultry consumption is on the rise because um, it's yeah a really fast-growing um, animal-derived protein. Uh, chicken thrive in fairly harsh conditions if it's not too hot, and they grow really fast. So from hatching to um, to actually processing, it's it's only thirty-nine to forty-two days. So you can see rather than than growing um yeah cattle or or pigs, you know this is a really um, quickly available meat. Obviously, I'm not saying it's the right thing to eat more chicken, but we need to be realistic. And with a lot of developing countries switching to a um, protein-rich diet, um, at the moment, poultry will be the yeah the meat that will fill this gap until we reach all those artificial meat ideas and and um, uh, vegetable-derived proteins, which also come at a cost. I mean, if I think about soy and uh, soy mm. plantations, um, so at the moment, this is this is how it goes and if it continues to rise like this we, we will literally drown in this mountain of feathers at some point um, and the existing disposal infrastructure which is rendering um, it's very limited it's a very smelly process to turn feathers into feather meal and the end of life um, options for this material are also very limited so um, in Europe you can't refeed it to animals um, because of the mad cow syndrome crisis in the 90s so um, it's usually landfilled or it can be used as pet food or for fish feed, but it's extremely smelly. So if you have your uh, yeah your your dog, you want to feed with this stuff. It's just incredibly off-putting. So yeah, at the moment there are not many options for for this stuff, and this is why we hope this is one um, alternative. And yeah, it requires really um, a shift um, in thinking um, that we need to find creative uses um, for for those kind of abundant waste fibers. Yeah, absolutely. And there'll always be, even if we reduce our consumption of chicken for meat, you know, large number of people will continue to eat eggs. <laughs> and as they only come from chickens at the moment, primarily, there's always going to be a waste product there. So, I mean, I think that that's, it's about getting that balance, isn't it? And you're quite right when you talk about, you know, alternative to meat, such as soy and the, the damage that that does in terms of, you know, um, water use and land use that, um, you know, so it's, it's a complex and interlinked problem as if with all of these things. Richard, I just always feel that if we could put all of your graduates together in one room, you know, together, give them some money and, and five years of time, then we would solve all of the world's problems because they have a solution to just about everything that in a different way that that, that, that we've um that we've talked about on all of these programs. Yeah, I think that um you know some of the themes that have that have come out to today are about um the real world complexities of of doing things which, you know, when, when, when Ed and Elena started off, they had these wonderful ideas and, and, you know, 
we we decided they were wonderful ideas to come on and then that hits the hits the hits the reality of of the world and to 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 make a really big difference um you know you have to do you know it sounds very boring but you do have to actually um take over value chains and supply chains if you're going to do some of the things that you want to do so it's a huge ask i mean i i'd point to tesla you know tesla was founded by somebody who'd already made a lot of money and had the courage of of his convictions and also a lot of his friends money um and they completely they, they, you know the, the the solution there was was just forget about the 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 rest of the plays in the value chain we'll just do it all we'll just do the whole damn thing um you know so if you were going to do that for these two technologies you'd be biting off a whole load of territory um so even putting them all together in the same room i think it would be fantastic we'd have a lot more inventions and we might have some really interesting things that you could do between the inventions which which is already actually happening in some of the community um but somewhere or another i'd want to put inside that room some very rich people who wanted to make a difference and i just want- nodding passionately at this yeah. point <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great idea <laughs> <laughs> so this is a call to some very rich people who are listening we have the brains, we have the skills, we have the talent. Yeah, Richard, give us your money. <laughs> Richard has the time and it's just give us your money. Come on, because we can make this happen. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a call to action if ever I heard one. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm, slightly, I'm slightly inhaling the um, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> this is what lockdown's done to him. <laughs> Actually, Amanda, the, 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 the thing is that, you know, to... to um, to be fair, there are actually now a lot of people who do have lots of money um, who are engaging. So maybe it's not so much give me give us your money <laughs> as, as you know, hurry up. I, th- mm. I, I, I think those don't are- miss this opportunity. This is the answer, isn't it? There's yeah, the, and, and I, there is. A, you're right. There's huge amounts of green investment and huge amounts of of money looking for for good sustainable homes and good long term you know, business them, investments. For them to be in the room with Ed, Elena, and lots of the others that you've you've now met, would be really good for them because it must be incredibly difficult if you've got a desire to do something, you do have the resources to do it to figure out what the hell it is you deploy your money on because you know it's complicated, it's hard, and um, yeah, we need to speed up delivering things. Um, so maybe you're right, actually. Maybe we should go and do that. Get a bloody great big room with some, you know, really good food and, and drink and get them all together in one place to talk about the future. Perhaps we could have an empty chicken warehouse. Oh no, that's not that bad. A clean, a clean empty chicken warehouse with minus the feathers. That's definitely something we should be doing. And that's our next series of that will be our next series of podcasts. We'll put mm. the, the the money man next to or woman next to the entrepreneur and the inventor. And we'll see if we can change the world together. That seems a perfect note to bring this conversation to a close. And it's been just delightful talking to you both. Thank you so much to our guests today, to Ed and Elena, and as always to you, Richard, because it's just, these are always um, diversions. I don't know. 
digressions. I'm not quite sure how to describe them, but really they just feel like kind of long and interesting walks in the park in which we talk about all of the problems the world faces and all of the solutions. So as always, it's been terrific. So thank you all for your time. And thank you so much to our listeners for joining us for this episode of Accelerating to a Better Future. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to catch future episodes and bonus material on your favourite podcast app or via the Grantham Institute website. A huge thank you to our guests today, to Ed and to Elena. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. See you soon. And thank you, Richard. And goodbye. Goodbye. Accelerating to a Better Future is a Planet Pod production, co-hosted by Amanda Carpenter and Richard Templer. Our thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and the team at Imperial College London. 